as a, as a young person, I, um, I never really liked that Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I, I, I found it to be sad. And um, it was sad to me that George Bailey's dreams were never realized. Um, but I think also it, w- it was at the point in the film when it seems that George has lost everything. I, I, found his, I found his expressions of anger and despair uh, really uncomfortable to watch. It, it scared me. <laughs> and um, it, his, his expressions of raw emotion were so real. And um, it's perhaps, remarkably, ironically, that that is the very reason why It's a Wonderful Life has now become one of my favorite Christmas movies. (laughs) I think that after you have endured enough losses, you have sustained enough heartaches, you have weathered enough brokenness, you are able to locate yourself in George Bailey's emotional world. And when you do, when you are able to locate yourself in George Bailey's emotional world, then something, there's something surprisingly hope-giving about this clumsy guardian angel, Clarence, rescuing George by showing him what the world would have been like if he had never been born. There's something poignant about reframing the world that way. And as we consider our text for today, I believe it's most poignant to think about what the world would be like if Christ had never been born. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all that would be different? For believers in Jesus, I, I, the, the notion of a world into which Christ had never been born, that, it, that's inconceivable. But Christ was born. Jesus did come into this world. And the difference between a world into which Christ has come and a world into which Christ had not come, well, that difference is day and night. It's light and dark. And so in our text today, Jesus, now just hours away from his death, explains why he was born. So I invite you to follow along as I read John chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 28 and read through verse 40. And may the Lord make fruitful the reading and the hearing and the preaching and applying of his word. Follow along. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves, these would be the the Jewish high priests and authorities and leaders and so forth, they did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, 
If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you don't want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven. In order for us to see this world rightly, to see ourselves rightly, to frame our circumstances rightly, we need you. We need your word. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need you to open our eyes. And we need you to open our hearts. And we need you to pour out grace upon grace upon grace that we might see and know and perceive and feel and live rightly in a manner that is worthy of you to In order that you might be praised. And in order that the world might be filled with your praise. So we turn to you now. Oh God, please please magnify your word to accomplish your purpose among us. 
and to help us to, to be freshly affected about the reason that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, the, the other night, we watched another of my favorite movies. The movie Miracle is a Disney recreation of the United States Olympic hockey team. They winning the gold medal in 1980. I, I remember that day. I mean, I remember the day of the miracle. I remember the moment of that miracle victory over the Soviet Union. I was, uh, I was in my first year at Bethel Seminary. I, I, that day, I was driving around the midway area of St. Paul. I'm living, uh, listening to this game on, on the radio in my car. And it was February. It was midwinter. It, I, it, it, it was cold and snowy. And still, everybody's windows were open. People were going crazy like we had just won the Super Bowl. And... And much of the reason for this pandemonium was that our country and the world was, was such a mess. Uh, Cold War, hostage crisis in the Middle East, gas oil shortage. We had just endured this Watergate scandal and our government in Washington had zero answers. And there was very little light in the darkness except for, of all things, a hockey team. <laughs> um, those years, as I, as I think of all that was going on, those years would have felt even more discouraging um, and probably would have engendered even more anxiety in me, but for the fact that I was a child in the 60s. I know this is going to come as a shock, but I was a child in the 60s, and I came of age in the 70s, and I still remember watching the Vietnam War and the Arab-Israeli War and the Racial Segregation War and the Anti-War War on TV every night. And it's, it was scary. It, it was sobering. My hometown, my small town in central Minnesota, made the news for having the worst drug problem per capita in the entire state of Minnesota. Our school had drills for what to do in the event of a nuclear bomb attack. My father worked as a civilian engineer on an Air Force radar station near my hometown that existed for the sole purpose of tracking incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles. Forty years ago, fifty years ago, we went to bed at night with a profound sense that it could be the end of the world. And then there's now. <laughs> it's, it's crazy how much stress through which people, especially young people, children, must navigate today. Fake news, climate change, gender change, terrorism, shootings, shooters, walking on eggshells at the potential of offending somebody and their anger going viral, FOMO, 
fear of missing out on something. One can experience traumatic stress or a panic attack by just looking at their Facebook feed. No matter what generation it is in which we live, this world remains a dark and broken and sin-cursed place. And we can only imagine what this world would be like if Jesus had not been born. But because of this book, it requires much less imagination to understand what this world was like during the generation Jesus was born. And contemplating the text of John 18, it's not difficult to locate ourselves in this narrative, in this circumstance. There was a time in my life when I would have found myself smack dab in the middle of the self-righteous moralism of the chief priests and Jewish community leaders. I used to define my Christian faith by my behaviors. Oh, before I turned to Jesus, I did these things. But after Jesus, I didn't do those things. And I looked down my <laughs> long nose at anyone who failed to measure up to my standard of conduct. I was squarely in the camp of those that Ryan referred to last week who sought salvation through religious performance. And friends, John clearly means for us to take note of the hypocrisy of that kind of religious vanity. Look again at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate had to go outside to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, hey, if, if this man weren't doing something wrong, something evil, something wicked, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, well, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, you know the law. It's not lawful for us to put anybody to death. So they refused to compromise their religious purity by staying outside a sinful person's residence. They wouldn't dare put a man to death unlawfully, but they had no problem condemning an innocent, guiltless man to an unlawful execution. Have you ever faced, been faced with the contradictions of your own soul? Are we not on our best days a mixture spiritually alive and vigilant and sincere one moment and anxious and envious and hurtful the next. I'm also able to locate myself in the, <laughs> the pathetic people-pleasing of Pilate. Fear of man's a, it's a pervasive disease. And when the pressures of leadership bore down on him, Pilate showed himself to be nothing more than a political guy. Just living for people's approval and votes. 
the entire narrative in relation to Pilate is a sad picture of someone who lacks the moral backbone to make hard decisions based on convictions about truth. So here's a man. He possesses positional authority of the mighty Roman Empire, and yet he doesn't know what to do. He's completely unsure of himself. He he doesn't know what to think of the situation. He's clearly frustrated. He's irritated. His schedule has been interrupted. He knows full well that Jesus is guiltless. And he knows full well that the motive of the Jewish leaders is nothing more than anger aroused by envy. And so he's he's just impatient with the whole thing. Wants to be done with it. Have you ever... Have you never compromised what your conscience has known to be right on account of fear of disapproval or fear for your reputation or fear of what it might cost you? And there is yet another place in this narrative to locate ourselves and that is in the place of innocent Unjust and wrongful suffering. The the scriptures are always honest in representing those who suffer for no sin of their own. But rather on account of the sins of others. Or simply because we live in a fallen world of disease and disability and death. Loved ones, innocent, unjust suffering would make no sense if it were not for the wrongful Suffering of Jesus Christ. So, moralists and people pleasers and victims of innocent suffering, we all need the good news of Jesus. And according to John 18, 28 to 40, the good news includes the truth that Jesus was born in order to establish a kingdom. Jesus was born for the reason of establishing a kingdom. He was born to bear witness to the truth of a realm that would break into this world that is not of this world, but would fill the world. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus is a sovereign who is Sovereign. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He works all things out according to the purpose of His will in the darkest of times. On the dark night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and on the dark day of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, there is a powerful thread running through the narrative. As dark and unjust as things appear, Jesus, in the midst of it, is asserting absolute sovereign authority. As evil as it all was, things are going exactly as God the Father and God the Son had planned. That thread appears back in verse 4 when it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, chapter 18, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that He had spoken of those whom I You gave me, I have lost not one. Verse 11, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 37, for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So no matter how dark the world may be in our generation, Jesus reigns and his purpose will not be thwarted. What an interesting encounter is this back and forth conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Imagine this scene. Here are these two men standing together. These two men looking at each other. These two men speaking to one another. One of them is powerful in the kingdom of this world. At that point in time, the Roman Empire was, it was well on its way to dominating the entire Mediterranean region. It was reaching ever outward, 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 outward in its power. If there was, if there was one word that characterized the Roman Empire, it would be the word powerful. It was a powerful empire overseen by powerful men who were backed up by powerful armies. That's what Pilate represented. He was the Roman governor, the highest Roman official in Judea. He had been appointed by the emperor himself, Tiberius Caesar. And his main place of rule was in Caesarea, a coastal city. 75 miles away, but on these occasions of these Jewish high feasts, the governor would come into Jerusalem, you know, riding in in the show of muscle and might. It's a not too subtle reminder to everyone of Rome's power and presence and authority over all that's happening everywhere. And so here he is, he's standing face to face with Jesus, and Pilate. Somewhere inside of him is aware that he is standing in the presence of power and authority greater than anything he has ever seen before. And so he says to Jesus in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus is not intimidated in the least. In fact, probably moved more by compassion than anything else, he he does his best to explain to this man, here's what's really going on. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. So Jesus explains what his kingdom is not. Pilate, my kingdom, my kingdom, my rule, my reign, my authority, it's not from here. It's not like Your kingdom. It's not like your power and authority. My servants aren't fighting. 
My servants aren't riding around intimidating people. My kingdom is not like what you think. And then having explained what his kingdom is not about, Jesus proceeds to explain what his rule and reign and authority are about. Verse 37, Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. It's true. I'm not going to lie. But listen, my kingship is not a cause for fear, but for hope. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So why was Jesus born? Jesus was born to establish a different kind of kingdom. And how will he establish this different kingdom if not by force? Jesus establishes his kingdom by bearing witness in himself to the truth. And the greatest bearing witness to the truth is going to happen in just a few short hours at the hands of these men as Jesus hung on the cross in order that he might become a curse for us and bear the curse away from us. Jesus was born to be the curse for us and bear the curse away from us. Last week, Ryan drew our attention to the fact that Jesus' death was substitutionary. That is, Jesus' death is for others. He didn't die, he didn't need to die for his own sins because he was perfectly sinless. And so Pilate is absolutely right on when he says in verse 38, I find no guilt in him. That's a remarkable statement. Jesus is perfectly sinless. No, Jesus is dying for others. His death is in someone else's place. Christ died for sinners. That, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And he draws all the punishment. He draws all the enmity upon himself in order to protect and in order to save his own. Jesus is about to take the punishment so that others can go free. Look look. At uh, verses 31 and 32. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And then John makes this, adds this commentary. He says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, What's going on there? Do you remember back in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus had said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John, again, makes this observation. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And the kind of death he was going to die is that he was going to be lifted up. He he was going to be hung up on a cross. 
Friends, the Jews did not crucify people. It wasn't until around AD 6 when Rome had formally occupied Judea and set its own government in place uh, that it was at that time that, that capital punishment was transferred over to Roman jurisdiction. So only Roman authorities could execute people. And one of their common forms of execution was crucifixion. But to the Jews, crucifixion, it, it was offensive. It was disgusting. It was heinous. It, it was worse than that. It was a cursed thing to them. Their law said it very clearly. And everybody would have understood and known it. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the Jews saw crucifixion as a clear sign that a person was cursed by God. So listen. We live in a sin-cursed world and we all bear, every one of us, a, a real curse of guilt before God. All of sin. And it is a curse we all experience daily until we believe what Christ has offered. We desperately need someone to lift that curse. We desperately need someone who will bear that curse for us. And loved ones, this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus became the curse for us and then bore that curse away. Listen to what Paul says. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God, before God, by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so you see, not only is Christ's death substitutionary for us, it is also what we call propitiatory. It's a fancy-dancy theological word that means it bears God's wrath away from us. Christ became cursed for us, Bearing the curse away from us. And so, loved ones, Jesus was born. The reason that he was born was to die a curse-bearing death for all who would put their trust in him. Jesus was born to hang on a cross, bearing witness to the truth that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish 
but would be part of an everlasting kingdom. Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth that in his death, God was reconciling sinners to himself. Christ was born to bear witness to the truth that he who is mighty has done a great thing. He has taken on flesh. He has conquered death's sting. He has shattered the darkness. He has lifted our shame, bearing it away. Holy is His name. Let's pray. Lord, this is the light This news, this truth that you bore witness to. This is the light that shines in the darkness. This is the reason for the season. This is the reason Christ was born. This is the reason that Jesus came into this world. To establish a realm where sin reigns no more. To establish a realm where there is freedom from condemnation. Forgiveness for sin. And the curse of sin is born away from us as far as the east is from the west forever and ever. And this is only good news to those who by your grace can hear this truth and by your spirit cherish it, treasure it. So we again invite you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. Make us freshly aware of the gift you have given to us. Make precious to us the sweetest gift that you have provided, O generous King. We trust you to do this now in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together.